Welcome to episode 17 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Before we begin to focus on the topic of today's episode, I'd encourage anyone who is listening to make contact with me if you have suggestions for future topics or guests, particularly as the feedback I've received from listeners has been useful in shaping the scope of the series so far. This episode sees attention turned to mobile phone networks, information flows and sport in India, the second most populous nation on earth. It's a timely episode given that the 2020 Cricket World Cup is presently being played in India, with 10 men's teams and 10 women's teams presently competing to claim world titles in this particular format of the game. I'm joined via Skype by Colin Agur, who is presently sitting in New Haven, Connecticut in the United States. Colin is a Bartlett Fellow for Access to Knowledge, which is a postdoctoral appointment that is part of the Information Society Project at Yale University's Law School. Later this year, he'll be taking up an assistant professor position in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. He holds a PhD from Columbia University in New York, and his research traverses the history of telecommunications and contemporary mobile phone usage, the social and legal implications of mass mobile telephony, and the unanticipated consequences of network development, which is a topic we'll be discussing shortly. With a particular interest in developing economies such as India and China, he has published in leading journals such as Media, Culture and Society, Journalism, Theory, Practice and Criticism, Information and Culture, and the Journal of African and Asian Studies. He's also the co-editor of a forthcoming collection, Education and Social Media Toward a Digital Future, which will be published by MIT Press later this year. He is also the vice chair of the Mobile Communication Interest Group for the International Communication Association. Further information about Colin can be found via his website, colinagur.com, C-O-L-I-N-A-G-U-R.com, Colin, thanks for taking time out of your evening to speak with me for the Media Sport Podcast Series. It's a pleasure to join you, Brad. Thanks for the invitation. I'd like to begin with a question um, about what, what you're presently doing in terms of your research, or more correctly, where you're doing it. Could you tell us about what the Information Society Project is and what a Bartlett Fellow within that um, does? The Information Society Project is an internet research center housed within Yale Law School. It brings together scholars of IP, uh, other issues in the law, a range of social scientists, everyone from communication scholars such as myself, to media sociologists, to a range of other people pursuing inquiries related to the relationship people have with the internet here in the United States and worldwide. So if you're familiar with the Berkman Center or with any of the other internet research centers that are blossoming around the world, uh, there are, in fact there are several in Australia as well that are analogous to what we do with the ISB, you have a sense of what we do uh, and the kinds of studies that we're undertaking. The Bartlett Fellow it is a position that has existed for several years. I'm, I believe, the fourth person to hold this position, and it is a postdoctoral appointment that focuses on access to knowledge. And uh, as part of this role, I get to work with a variety of scholars in South Africa, India, Brazil, China, Egypt, 
and other places, and uh, have, a, I think, a very rich interdisciplinary and international set of conversations about access to knowledge. And that, that international scope um, obviously informed the sorts of research you've completed on mobile phone usage and networks. What, why did India in particular capture your attention in the research you've published recently? Well, India and I have years of history together. Uh, my initial exposure to mobile phone use in India came really by accident. I, uh, years ago, I was traveling the country as, uh, as a backpacker, and everywhere I traveled, I saw people using phones in, in ways that really fascinated me. Uh, the rickshaw driver with the phone, he was also running businesses on the side. The 14-year-old son of a shopkeeper had found ways to use phones to do deliveries. Uh, many of these things were people who were able to leverage existing businesses in new and imaginative ways and add value socially, but some of them were also maybe a little bit less socially beneficial. People were able to become drug dealers more easily, or they were able to offer other illicit uh, services to people. Uh, and so everywhere I went, I encountered this phenomenon of people who really didn't have a lot materially. They might not have had electricity or running water, but they had a phone. And I was amazed by the imagination people had in the ways they used phones. And so that grew into eventually a dissertation, and it grew into a whole body of research that I continue to pursue to this day. And you've, anyone who has a, even a passing familiarity with India knows that cricket is a, a core part of, of its culture, politics, and, and indeed social relations. You chose to focus on the Indian Premier League, the IPL. Um, could you give a sense of how big the IPL is and why you chose to study it in particular? Well, the Indian Premier League is, uh, it's very large. Uh, it, I, I should perhaps begin by explaining for the uninitiated what it is. Uh, it is, uh, there are three formats of cricket as a sport. There's the traditional test match, which, which can be three to five days in length and dates back a century and a half uh, and is played in traditional cricket whites. Uh, and then there is a, a one-day format, which is uh, 50 overs. Uh, that's the World Cup, uh, which includes a few more countries than are in the, the test format. And then there's the 2020 format, uh, which is, as the name implies, a more abbreviated 20-over format. So that's 120 balls, typically played in the evening, prime time, matches last anywhere between two and three hours. So whereas a test match is a real investment of time for the viewer, a 2020 match is, it's kind of like watching a film. Uh, it's or watching, as in the U.S. here, kind of like a baseball game in terms of length. So it's something that is much more uh, ideally uh, structured for television broadcasting. So the networks like it, young viewers like it, uh, players like it because there's often a lot of money involved, uh, and uh, national associations like it because it pays the bills. So the last 10 years or so have seen uh, a proliferation of national leagues in the 2020 format. Uh, many people in Australia, for example, would know about the Big Bash League, which had a tremendous season this past year. Uh, and India has the biggest, richest, and loudest of all 2020 leagues, the Indian Premier League. 
Uh, it is a club-based league with uh, an ever-evolving number of teams, typically eight to nine. A few have gone bankrupt at various points. Um, two of them were suspended this past year. Uh, but it is a, a very significant amount of money owing to the fact that the teams are owned generally by large industrial conglomerates or celebrities. And so it is a place to be seen. Uh, it is a, it's not your grandfather's cricket. Uh, there are fireworks, there are cheerleaders, uh, there are Bollywood stars, and it's something that is very, on the one hand, quintessentially Indian in the way that it draws on film spectacle, uh, and there's something also that's inescapably global about it, in the way that it brings in the world's top cricketers. So this was something I chose to study as a mobile phenomenon, uh, and uh, I think it offers some insight into contemporary global India. I'm someone who has grown up, played and watched cricket most of my life. However, my, my experience of travelling to North America, and I understand you, you're Canadian, um, knowledge of cricket in North America has not been great in my experience, even though, interestingly enough, the first recorded international match was between Canada and the United States in the 1840s from memory. Were you familiar with the game prior to studying it? And, 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 if, and if, if not, how was the learning curve? And if so, how, did, how, how had you become familiar? Well, my first experience uh, seeing the game played was as a boy in Vancouver, seeing on the weekends people in Stanley Park playing. They would get dressed up in their cricket whites and they would have uh, club matches on the, there are uh, fields there to play, not proper pitches, but they, they make do. Uh, but later on, I in my teens, I lived in Brisbane, Australia, and uh, that happened to be the time when Australia won the first of three World Cups in a row in 1999. And so that was a formative experience for me as a, as a watcher of the game. And that, uh, that was a pretty exciting uh, tournament. And so ever since then, really, uh, I've been following the game. I later on lived in the UK as a, as a master's student. Uh, and so there's a second cricket-playing country that I've lived in. And I, of course, did some, a year of field work in India for my dissertation. And so that's a third, uh, and I've had a chance as a fan to, to experience the game elsewhere in the, in the Caribbean and other parts of the world. Uh, so it's been a long-term uh, thing for me. So by the time I arrived uh, at Eden Garden at the start of the IPL season, I was a, um, probably a bigger fan of cricket than the average Canadian. <laughs> and you, it's really interesting the way that you've used the context of the IPL to study the potential of mobile phones, mobile messaging and apps and the creation of new organisational forms. You developed the concept of the second of second order networks. Could you, I suppose this raises the question of what a first order network is, but what are you seeking to capture and explain by the concept of second order network? What I'm trying to do is tease apart the material components on the one hand. These are the things I refer to as being the first order network. So these are the towers, the switches, the cables, devices that link users in a material way. That's, that's the first order. The second order, I emphasize the social. These are the user-driven byproducts of first order networks. And so 
once you get a critical mass of users using the first order network technology, a second order network kind of takes flight in a sense. And that's where you get exciting things that nobody can really predict in these unexpected outcomes that sometimes grow out of pre-existing social networks, but often become their own social networks with their own links, their own norms, their own rules. And people who create first-order network infrastructure, it's very difficult to predict the kind of second-order networks that will develop. So in a sense, if we, we approach the first-order network as the materiality of mobile mm -hmm. uh, communication networks, telecommunications in particular, you're using this notion of the way in which this infrastructure is being used to build different social formations around particular games? Well, I should, I should say how I researched them. Mm. So I spent uh, a year in India traveling up and down, east, west, north, south, all over the country, uh, talking to the bulk of my data comes from interviews with users. Uh, I did this, uh, did interviews in stadiums at matches, uh, of people I saw using mobile phones. I talked to them about how they were using them. I observed their, the way they were holding them, their practices, their devices. I kept counts of types of devices uh, and people's habits. And what I've tried to do from these interviews and also with, with interviews of people outside stadiums, people like bookies, for example, is try to get a sense of who's involved, what are they doing, what are their objectives, and how do they go about pursuing these objectives? So some features of uh, the second-order networks that I found in, in, in India, especially with respect to gambling in the IPL, are that the networks are very informal, that these are often text message-based. It's important to know that text messaging is free in India. So you can freeload off the network as a user. It doesn't cost you anything. To participate beyond the cost of the device itself. So what this means is that people sitting in the stadium, they can send messages to people they're involved with, friends, relatives, bookies, and because it's cost nothing to send the message, it, it, in a sense it, it, it almost encourages people to send lots of them. Many of the messages that I saw people sending and people were very happy to show me um, about gambling, uh, they were codes reduced into a single line of a text message. And so for a code to work, the people on both ends, the sender and receiver, have to have a sense of what the code will mean. And so if you're abbreviating things, you have to have a good shared understanding of that. So this is a little bit different from, say, studies of a gambling website. So these are people who know each other well enough to exchange bets and collect payment later. So there are syndicates who often do this. And there have been syndicates, uh, or there have been people running betting rings in India as long as there has been broadcast of cricket. So television came in the 20s, or radio in the 20s, television came in the 50s, and people would gather in bazaars to listen to and watch broadcasts. And in those contexts, uh, there would be people who would uh, accept bets. So that, that same sort of social practice 
of betting in relation to the game has evolved in the mobile age. And you would sit in the stadium and you would send a text message to someone you, uh, who is your bookie, who you've met face to face somewhere. And that person would uh, take the bet and you'd sort things out later. What were the challenges involved? I mean, you, you mentioned this there that people were very happy to, to show you the messages that they were sending. Um, I mean, was it, is it a question, what, what's the process then, I suppose, in inter interpreting what's going on here from, from the position of an outsider? Well, a lot of illegal activity happens in plain sight. It's simply a question of uh, people understanding consequences. So in my case... I don't think anybody thought I was a police officer. But once they got talking to me, they would realize very quickly that I was a Canadian. So, you know, what could I possibly know about the game? So I was sort of this, uh, this charming curiosity, I think, <laughs> for some people. They could play the role of someone who would educate me about the game. And I'd be very happy to play along. Oh, yeah, tell me about that, right? And I would learn something along the way. It was uh, very helpful. Uh, uh, a second is that once I made clear that I was a student doing research, this was even more disarming. And uh, so I had come so far, and I was there to learn about, ostensibly to learn about cricket. And so once you present that to people, then they're, they're pretty understanding. Uh, and they're pretty willing to, to have a conversation about, about what they do. I'm not a journalist. Uh, I wasn't trying to record them. I wasn't trying to catch their names. Uh, and if you just get people talking about the thing they love most, and in India, for a lot of people, that thing is cricket, uh, then you can get a lot of really insightful data. Uh, so I had a very thick stack of field notes uh, after every match I went to. And, and you actually report in, in, in your research that, you know, an average Indian Premier League match has around $30 million waged on it. Um, that obviously raises an issue you've mentioned, which is corruption. Um, sort of what, what type, what forms does corruption take and how does that relate to the use of mobile devices? Well, c corruption uh, rears its head in a number of ways. One of the most uh, problematic and, and routinized ways is that the, the very purpose of the league is to make money. This is not the highest, purest form of the game. Players come together in a very contractual sense for a period of two months. They often don't know each other at the start. Uh, and although most teams base their marketing around a handful of famous international players, uh, by IPL rules, most of the players in the teams are young, and they are Indian, and they are unknown. So these people don't have endorsement deals. You, you see them bat. There's no sponsor's logo on their bat. They've yet to make their name, their fortune, and they're just one or two bad matches away from being cut from the team. So those people are trying to do what they can to either really make it as a player or, failing that, try to make a bit of cash quickly. The game of cricket allows for this, and if you are in certain positions, you are able to engineer little moments in the game that can be financially advantageous to you. For example, if you are bowler 
you have the, the unique ability to determine the placement and speed of the ball. You can overstep the line, a no ball. This is called illegal delivery. And one or two of these, that's normal in a match. But the amount of micro betting, spot betting as it's also called, that goes on is tremendous. And if you agree to, as a bowler, overstep the line on the third ball of the sixth over, you can make yourself thirty, fifty, seventy thousand dollars. That's not bad for a minute's work. It doesn't change the outcome of the match. It doesn't disadvantage your team in a significant way, but it can make a real difference for a player who is just starting out. So those incentives exist, and they are very hard to uh, stop those incentives. And the league is uh, in the position of always having to watch thing, little things like no balls for, uh, to see if they're legitimate or not. Now where things get harder is that because of the structure of the game with only 20 overs, many matches end dramatically in the final one or two overs. And when this happens, a great deal of money is at stake. So you mentioned the average of 30 million US dollars a match. That's true. And it's much higher for playoff matches or the final. So there's a, tempt a temptation for people involved to make deals. These can be uh, young players, but really the people who are putting them up to it, these are bookies. And uh, a team will typically rent out an entire hotel to make it difficult for unwanted people, whether they're uh, obsessive fans or media or bookies, to get a hold of uh, team members. Now, senior players will be very careful about their mobile phones, but junior players will often be happy to, to receive an unsolicited call from a journalist, for example, for interview, or possibly even a bookie who wants to make uh, an offer. So mobile phones offer the ideal way to get past team security and reach a player. What you're describing is a, a very high-speed and responsive sort of set of communication networks in, in relation to what's going on in the game, the intention of the better, the, the, the mobile networks that they're connected to, i.e. who they're calling and who they're placing their bets with. As you were standing at the matches or at a match, set the scene for what's going on in relation to a events in the game versus what people are doing and how they're placing their bets. Well, here's an, an, an example of uh, where I really re realized this is a big deal. It was actually the, the first ball of the first match of the season. I walked into Eden Garden, which is the largest cricket stadium in India. It's in Kolkata. And I sat down in my seat with tens of thousands of people uh, all ready for the, the game and, and, and for the season to commence. And... The first ball, Brett Lee, who is well-known in Australia, he's a fast bowler, uh, he came thundering down the pitch and he clean bowled uh, Unmuk Chand of the Daredevils, Delhi. And on that first ball of the match, he took the wicket. Uh, and it's for uh, followers of cricket know that if you take a, a top-order wicket on the first ball of a match, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, in the IPL, it, it changes the odds because the odds are fluid. They change with each ball in the match. And so as soon as uh, Chan's wicket lay reclining on the turf, 
I saw people all around me pulling out their phones. And they were furiously tapping away into their phones. And I, after things had calmed down a little bit, I asked, so what was that? What were people doing? Were they tweeting this? Were they you know, writing on something else on social media, texting friends? And two guys next to me said, no, no, no. We were all betting because a top-order wicket that falls in the first ball, that means that all kinds of odds just change for the match. And so at that point, I realized, okay, there's something here that I hadn't really realized. I thought I was going there to study a mobile spectacle, a tamasha, the Hindi word for spectacle. Uh, but what I ended up realizing is that in addition to all of that, there's a whole other side to the, the mobile relationship with the IPL. And it's a side that the league had not intended at all when it tried to make the league a very mobile-friendly league, which it is. It encourages people to bring phones to the stadium, to tweet, to photograph, to videotape, to do all sorts of things. Uh, but this is the kind of unanticipated consequence that can develop when you get large masses of users using networks for their own purposes uh, in ways that are often in, uh, in defiance of the expected outcomes. Now, it was actually a question I had for you. In addition to, obviously, what's going on through mobile networks and the, and the sort of betting syndicates that they're connected to, are fans also doing, doing things like you would expect to see, I suppose, in North American sports stadiums, such as social networking and, and videos? What, what's, what are the other sorts of activities that you witnessed? Well, during the innings breaks, for example, they would be polls on the screens in the stadium and the, they would ask people to text in answers to things or quizzes, that sort of thing. Uh, the, the IPL wants people to follow the league, to uh, retweet, to post photos to its official accounts, to download the official app, to take part in fantasy uh, sports kind of betting. Not real betting because betting on cricket is illegal uh, and the IPL is very much against it. But fantasy betting, they're okay with. Uh, so these sorts of things uh, are all sanctioned in the IPL. As I interviewed people at the IPL, and, and they were very straightforward in saying that the this is our primary means of communication with our fans. These are the people who buy our merchandise, they fill our seats, they, they love the game. And uh, so we, we know that, yes, they... If they come and they film something at our our match, uh, that may anger some other sports leagues. But we are a mobile-friendly sports league. We came in in, in two thousand eight, so we are mobile native, and we know that someone who films part of a match on a mobile phone might watch it once or twice. But it's no replacement for a broadcast quality uh, kind of video of the match. And if anything that videotape will serve only to reinforce the fans' relationship with, with the game and with the league. In reflecting back on you know, what, what was obviously a, a very extensive period of research on mobile phones and cricket, use, and cricket in India, how has it changed or influenced the way you think about mobile media and communications more generally now? That's a great question. Uh, I think one of the takeaways for me and, and especially when I talk to my colleagues here in the U.S., is I think 
It's very important to understand the, uh, the informal nature of a lot of mobile communication in a developing world. In India, to speak of a telephone period is to speak uh, almost exclusively of mobile phones, so not these things tethered to the wall. Uh, to speak of the internet is to speak primarily of mobile phones, not to desktops. Uh, and, and to speak of the way people pay for their devices is to speak of prepaid calling, not these two-year contracts that are so common uh, here in the U.S. So uh, people can switch carriers, they can switch devices uh, very easily. Uh, the bad guys can switch SIM cards very easily. And so it's very informal and it's very fluid. And so it's a different kind of market than exists here. So that's one thing. The second is that it, the, the, the size of developing economies, mobile markets, is uh, very large and growing. India, in the early 1990s, had fewer phones in the whole country than existed in Melbourne. Today, it has somewhere around a billion telephones. That's quite a change. And so this is becoming the, the mainstream human experience with the telephone is in the developing world. And so we need to see that for what it is. This is not some sort of outlier. It's something that is very much worthy of our attention. There's a lot we can learn from that. And you've also written about a number of other topics, um, including uh, the, about the Indian public sphere, social media, and the, and the Delhi rape case. Um, it's important research that deals with, with a, a clearly distressing event. Now, what did you, you and your, your, your co-authors find out about how Indian journalists and foreign correspondents reported on that case and what it says about either Indian media culture or Indian political culture and, and indeed gender relations? Sure. So just some background. The, in December 2012, there was a, uh, a very a particularly brutal and, uh, case of a, a rape that took place in Delhi. I, I happened to be in Delhi that, that semester uh, conducting field work. And, and although India does have a troubling uh, record in, in terms of uh, sexual violence against women, that case aroused uh, a, a great deal of public attention. I think part for the brutality of the case and um, and so protests took place uh, in a number of areas around the city uh, and so there was a question of how journalists would cover those protests. So the paper that we undertook uh, is a study of the the ways that, that journalists, especially foreign correspondents, well foreign correspondents and Indian uh, uh, reporters as well, covered these protests, and what this says about the inclusivity and exclusivity uh, of the uh, social media platforms in India. So uh, we found that there are these new spaces of reporting that exists uh, on, 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 especially on Twitter and, and Facebook, but that they remain exclusive in a number of respects. Uh, so for from a journalistic standpoint, they're exclusive in terms of social media skills, types of news organization, access to social media, right? Um, and, of course, uh, these are often 
very unrepresentative of wider public opinion within India. So to follow a debate on Twitter is not necessarily to follow a debate uh, in a way that is representative of the whole country. So we talked to journalists about the ways that they tried to get past this challenge. Uh, and so this is a couple years ago now. So uh, thanks in, in part to the tweeting prowess of the now Prime Minister uh, Modi um, and to other factors, uh, India has a higher rate of social media adoption than it did at the time. But nevertheless, uh, social media usage is still very much correlated with uh, wealth and education levels. Uh, so a lot of the journalists we talked to, uh, they followed social media really to keep an eye on uh, where and when protests were taking place, for example. Uh, but if they really wanted to know what was going on, they would have to physically go and interview people face to face. A lot of them were quite skeptical about social media at the time. I'd, I'd very much like to go and do a follow-up on this. Um, I think it would be fascinating to do a kind of comparison in a year or two and then uh, look back on what we found back in 2013 and to see the extent to which things have changed. If there was a book or an article in, that you would recommend that everyone should read it but in communications and media studies or indeed mobile media and communications um, what would it be? The best book for someone who wants to understand the ways that mobile phones have made their presence felt in India is called The Great Indian Phone Book. It's by Asadaran and uh, Robin Jeffrey. It came out uh, two years ago, and it's, uh, it's a really outstanding uh, uh, book, that, uh, it, and it's well-written, too. It's well-researched and well-written. Uh, if you're looking for something shorter that will give you a sense of some unanticipated consequences in India, I would recommend Robert Jensen's piece about uh, fisheries in Kerala. The short story is that the government in Kerala, which is a, a small state on the southwest coast of, of the country, rolled out mobile phone towers, and Kerala is a mountainous state, so most people live along the coast. And uh, they dutifully studied all the potential beneficiaries of a mobile phone network. And one group that they hadn't really thought about uh, was fishermen. And uh, so Robert Jensen is an economist, and he studied the, uh, the effects of this network of towers along the coast in terms of the average price up in, at markets up and down the coast, the level of waste, the level of profit, and so on. And so it's an example of a group of people who had really been an afterthought in planning end up becoming one of the large beneficiaries of this rollout. So that's another one. Uh, for, uh, if I can uh, add a third uh, set of readings for the listener, would be the studies that a woman named Serpa Tenhunen has undertaken uh, in West Bengal. She published a pair of articles uh, in 2008-2011. And these were studies of uh, mobile phones in villages. And very often in the mobile phone literature, there's an implicit assumption, sometimes explicit, that mobile phones uh, strengthen individualism. 
And her research shows the ways that the arrival of phones can actually uh, reinforce existing social relations in a small uh, and socially tight context, such as a village. So I think those uh, readings that I've just mentioned uh, offer a variety of, of really important uh, uh, things to think about for India. It's a, uh, a wonderfully diverse and, and rich country with uh, you know, multiple lifetimes of things to study uh, in terms of mobile phones alone. Uh, but those give, I think, some of the reasons why I became so interested in the country and why I think that it has uh, something to offer for anyone who's interested in mobile communication. Mm. And a final question, um, particularly, of course, that you're, you're now looking to uh, a move um, to take up a new appointment, is what are you working on now and, and what can we look forward to reading or hearing about over the next couple of years? Well, the biggest project right now is a, a book-length study of the unanticipated consequences of uh, mobile phone networks. And so this builds on this, this theme of, that I explored in my work on gambling, and it will discuss uh, things like vice and power struggles and authority and the ways that users navigate these power structures and boundaries on an everyday basis. And it can take the form of political dissent and religious communication and all kinds of other day-to-day uh, -day things in which users are they're looking at their devices and they're thinking about the authority uh, structures and figures that exist in their lives and they see them as ways to negotiate their position and the the kinds of possibilities that are available to them so we can see that in a variety of contexts uh, if you are uh, if you're a visitor to North Korea, for example, uh, you, if you get to know the right people, you can find out that there are networks of smugglers who bring phones in across the river from China. And it is increasingly difficult for the regime to stop this. So there is an extreme case of negotiating authority. And it will be a very fascinating case study in the years to come, what happens in that part of the world. So. The book will come out, I, I hope, in 2018. I have a couple of presses in mind. But that's something that's at the front of my mind and I think will be uh, keeping me very busy uh, with studies in all corners of the globe. Well, thank you, Colin. I really wish you well with that book. It sounds fascinating. And, and thanks for your time um, in speaking with me um, for the, the Media Sport podcast series. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much.